Welcome back to Call Time with Katie Bierenbaum. Thank you so much for bearing with me in this absence. I know we had the Music Man article on Arts Journal in there, so please check that out if you haven't already, but it has been a minute since we've had an actual podcast episode, so thank you so much, all of you, for your patience and waiting for that. But I'm so excited to get back to it and even more excited because of this incredible guest I have with me today. Our guest spoke in one of my classes at NYU a few weeks back. In fact, a class taught by a former guest of the podcast, the legendary Donna walker Tune. And during this class, I had one of those I have to have her on the podcast moments that I've talked about before on the show. So I'm so lucky she's here with me. She's been the director of public engagement at the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington, D.C., the executive director of Washington Project for the Arts, the public relations director for the Drawing Center here in New York, the director of development and communications for the Socrates Sculpture Park in Long Island City, and since 2019, I believe it's 2019, correct me if I'm wrong. Late, late 2018, very late. Late 2018. <laughs> she's been the leader of the Asian American Arts Alliance, otherwise known as A4, the only nonprofit dedicated to serving Asian American artists and arts organizations across all artistic disciplines. Clearly, she's had a storied career in arts management, leadership, and advocacy, and I couldn't be more thrilled to have her on the show. So please welcome Lisa Gold. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you, Katie. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for being here. We were saying before we were playing a little bit of phone email tag in order to make this happen. You're a very busy lady, so I really appreciate it. Is there anything major I missed in your very impressive bio? I don't think so. I don't know that it's so impressive, but I think you covered the, the the gist of it. Well, good. I mean, my first question, looking at your bio, just, you know, personally, are you from D.C.? Is that why a lot of your work starts there? Well, I was born in D.C. and I moved to New York when I was three. And I've basically been back and forth my whole life between New York and D.C. That makes a lot of sense. I have some more questions about sort of the DC art world later. But first, a question I ask most of my guests, if not all, can you think of a moment, an aha moment or a light bulb moment, for lack of a better phrase, that you had when you were younger, when you said to yourself, oh, this is, the art world is for me. This is what I want to do. I don't know that I had a specific light bulb moment. Things I always loved art as a child. My mother was a painter. She was very artistic, and I really enjoyed painting, drawing, just making things. But I never really understood it to be a viable career. Don't know why, but that didn't happen until much later. So I didn't didn't have a lot of faith in myself as a as an artist. And I think back when I was younger, I associated being an artist with being a great draftsperson which we all know is not necessarily <laughs> required, especially in conceptual art these days. And it was a little bit daunting for me. I didn't think my skills were up to par. I thought I would end up, you know, hungry on the streets, not being able to support myself. So I ended up actually going into advertising, which was a creative deal that had health insurance and things like that, which I found really awful and eventually <laughs> found my way back into the art world. How did you make that transition eventually? I started doing a lot of volunteer work with different arts organizations, and I started just taking on projects and doing things. I think sometimes when you don't know what you don't know, you're kind of fearless. Yeah. And so I organized a bunch of events, and I would just drop in and offer my services. And I was always very organized. I still love a good spreadsheet. And I think those organizational skills would often be of service because the people I was helping did not always have that. So I think I was welcome. It was a welcome addition behind the scenes. So what was your first sort of real paying job in the arts world? I think my first real paying job was with Apex Art in Tribeca. And that was as a development grant writer person. Sadly, my first day of work was supposed to be September 11th, 2001, which was not a great, so I couldn't even get into the office. The phone lines were down. It was, it was really challenging. 
And then coming out of that, people were, New York was just completely freaked out. People were not really thinking about supporting the arts at that time. It was too soon. So it took, it took a while. It was a really tough entry into the, the paying art. I can only imagine. And that's, as you said, downtown, right? So yeah, really. it's on Church Street, right? Yeah. Below Canal, I could not even get into to the wow. gallery. Wow. That's very intense. Yeah, I've heard coming from the theater world, I've heard stories about the shows on Broadway making the decision about like when they were going to get back up and running after that event. And I'm I'm from New York as well. So I remember that even though I was young and it was very, very intense. Switching gears a little, <laughs> you come from the visual arts world, correct? Yes. Yes. And is that, you think that's because your, your mom was a painter and you started painting or drawing like her? How did that unfold? I think I... Yeah, I really loved it. It was, you know, easy to do. I, I took dance classes as well. When I was little, I always loved dance. I wasn't super musically talented. And it's strange. It wasn't like a big part of our household growing up. There, mm -hmm. there aren't, on my, on my father's side, there aren't very many musicians. On my mother's side, the Korean side, we're all, you know, everybody had to learn an instrument and everybody had to study and do all the things. Totally. I was not the, because I don't know if I was the black sheep of the family, but I am not a doctor, a lawyer, or finance professional like my Korean cousins. Do you have siblings? I do not. I'm an only child as well, because I was going to ask if your siblings are in those other worlds as well. Was it a tough conversation to bring up to your parents, for example, like, oh, I'm leaving advertising and I'm going to work in the visual arts? What was that conversation like? I don't think it was particularly challenging. My, although I don't know, I'd have to ask my, my family how they really <laughs> felt. That's <laughs> my father worked in government his whole life. So he had this like very regimented, regular job. He was a, he gave out grants and did research. So I, going into the arts was, was very different. My, my mother passed away when I was very young. So she was not you know, involved in that decision when I made it. But I think it was probably, you know, my parents were always supportive of my choices. And I think they just believed in me that I could figure out how to make it work. Well, you had also oh, already had like a real person job. And it's not as if you were saying like, oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be a painter. It was, I'm going to go support these artists in these institutions, which I think is a slightly different conversation. Speaking of which, you started, I guess, in development, but you've worked in sort of a community engagement lens. And now, of course, you're executive director. Um, was it just sort of an accident that you did these different jobs in arts management? Is there one that you gravitate towards? Do you use all of them now as an executive director? Tell me about those experiences. I use all of those jobs and more in my role as executive director, for sure. I was really interested in writing when I was younger. I was always writing, and I think that helped me a lot. And that was an easy transition into communications, as well as with the advertising background. So that seemed like a regular or very, like I said, an easier transition from advertising into writing, communications. But as an executive director, yeah. Every, every skill that you could imagine. I mean, it's really like running a small business. You have finance and management, HR, tech, communications, community relations, all of it. You need all of it. Totally. And you've worked, I, I mentioned earlier, you've worked primarily in New York and Washington, D.C. How would you say those two different art worlds are different or similar? I think that there aren't just two art worlds. I think even within a city, there are multiple art worlds. Took me a while to to recognize, you know, Washington, D.C., it is a government town and it is the Smithsonian, is the behemoth, you know, the big elephant in the room. But every, you know, every city, no matter how large or small, has an art culture that has a group of artists, whether they are connected to the broader art world or not. And I think you know, that certainly exists in New York. 
I think in Washington, it's it's hard. It's a smaller smaller city. A lot of the museums, the smaller museums, the galleries are overshadowed by the National Gallery and the Smithsonian. So it's a little bit harder for them to garner attention. And it's also, you know, a three-hour train ride from New York to D.C. So a lot of people often travel to Philly or or New York. Um, so that that's the same. And I think, you know, in, in New York, there's a lot more emphasis on the commercial aspect, the art mm. fairs, the art galleries, and less so in, in Washington. Was the commercial side of the art world ever an option for you, or did you always feel strongly about working in not, not-for-profit? I, it didn't really occur to me when I first started that they were so different. I mean, they are still connected, obviously. It's a multi faceted organism of the art world. But I I think that I naturally gravitate towards nonprofit work. The profit motive isn't as strong as it should be, perhaps. Although our organization is doing fine fiscally. I think that the sale of objects, the sale of things wasn't as interested to me as the actual artists themselves and their process, the things they were thinking about, the issues that they were challenging, that, that's the part that really excites me because I think artists have a unique way of looking at the world. And I, sometimes that conflicts with what galleries need or want. And I love the freedom that nonprofits can often offer to artists that commercial galleries probably cannot always yeah, I think that's true. You you spoke in that answer about being especially interested in the artists, and that makes total sense to me for what you do with A4 now. And I hadn't heard of A4 before you came to speak to the class, but I was particularly intrigued by the concept that, you know, you're not producing your own work. It's just supporting those artists in that community and supporting the arts organizations in that community. Was that what attracted you to the organization when you made the leap to lead it primarily? Or was the advocacy element the main thing? Tell me about that. I think it really was. I want to say advocacy. It really was. I guess there's a there's an advocacy component to it. When I started at A4, the current political administration was really not friendly. I should almost say hostile to immigrants, to people of color. I assume you mean the the federal political administration. The federal. Yeah. The federal administration, yes. And I felt that this role, I could really marry a lot of my interests in terms of political engagement, speaking up for marginalized communities, and my love of the arts. So it seemed like a really good fit at the time. And then as things just exacerbated with the COVID pandemic and the attack on the community, it became even more important to be a strong voice for the AAPI community. I was going to say that you you come to lead A4 late 2018. You have, I guess, about a year and change of sort of regular world. And then the pandemic hits and... I imagine, as you say, your job became that much more complicated than even the job of a mainstream arts organization during that time because of how complicated the experience was for members of the Asian American community. Tell me about your pandemic experience and sort of getting A4 through the hump of that. I'll tell you, it was very, truly it was scary at the beginning. I think it was scary for everyone. Nobody knew how long this would last. Some people thought it would be a couple of months. My physician cousin told me it would be three years, and I didn't believe him. I think that it was really an opportunity to to talk to the artist, to really understand the community, to understand the role of a community organization, and to be there for our constituents, to understand, to ask them what they needed and to try to provide those services and settings that people needed to come together. We, we, we launched a survey in the beginning to see what people wanted. And of course, everybody needed money because <laughs> all of their grants were canceled, all of their gigs were canceled, yeah. and nobody had a, 
an idea of what was going to happen or how long that was going to last. But we were also in a tenuous financial position and we didn't know what was going to happen to our funding either. So it was, like I said, it was a bit of a frightening time for everybody, but we tried to figure out what we could do. And one of the things we could do was provide opportunities for conversation and support. And a lot of times that's just what people needed. They wanted to be in communication, in community with other people. So we put together programs that brought others artists together in a virtual residency. We did several Zoom workshops on health and healing and also on solutions to anti-Asian hate. What can you do from a legal perspective or a safety perspective or a mental health perspective? So we, we tried to provide whatever we could to ensure that the artists felt a sense of care and connection. Have you been able to launch in-person events and programming since the pandemic hit? We've done a few. We haven't done quite so many. Most of the events we've done have been outside, although with, with, with the weather turning, probably not so many in the near future. But we, we have done probably maybe two or three events in our space, and it's just fantastic. Like People feel so great being in the space together. Just You can't replicate that on Zoom, sadly. No, you can't. And I think people are hungry now for any any connection, any opportunity to get in a room, especially other artists after having not worked for so long. So I think that's really meaningful and powerful. We've been sort of dancing around. I sort of mentioned what the mission of A4 is at the beginning, but if you could tell me and my listeners in your own words, what do you see as the primary mission of A4? especially moving forward after the pandemic? Yeah, it's, it's really to, to build a community. It's to ensure representation and opportunities for artists. It's to ensure equity for our community. So I often speak, in fact, I'm speaking at a city council here, I'm going to testify on Wednesday, because we in New York City, Asian American and Pacific Islanders, make up 18% of the population we are the fastest growing immigrant group in the country, and we do not receive nearly that proportional share of resources. So it's unfair, and we need to stand up for it. And so I try to bring the community together. I do a monthly leadership meeting for API arts organizations, and we talk, we meet with funders, we meet with government officials, we talk to each other to offer support for our programs and share resources. So I think, you know, serving as kind of like the backbone of the community to know that we're there to support. We're always here to amplify the work and the needs and the resources that our community offers. I'm in a class right now, a different class through the Wagner School at NYU, which is just on public policy in New York City specifically. And we had a whole unit on demographics and what you say is true. And I totally agree that despite being the fastest growing population in the country, resources and sort of thought within the New York City community is not really given to that population. And obviously that's unfair. And I think also, like in all areas, the arts is sort of like the last thought. And so I think the mission is really fabulous. It sounded like from your talk in class, that you did a few weeks ago, as well as what you just said, it seems like your role, as well as A4's role, is a little more intertwined with the government than the typical arts organization. Do you see it that way? I think we probably are more involved in speaking up for our community than a lot of mainstream organizations, just because they don't have to. Yeah. They receive their fair share of funding. You know, they see themselves on TV. They read about their novels and their albums in the New York Times every week. And our community doesn't. And so in order to ensure that we are getting that fair representation, I think it does require societal change. So it's working at a high level. It's also working, you know, in the community. It's trying to ensure opportunities by giving people writers the chance to get published so that we can have reviews from 
uh, culturally competent perspective so that they're getting more publishing opportunities so that they will have a chance to be editors or, you know, casting directors or whatever to what we call these gatekeeper roles to help ensure that they can bring, we can bring our community along. How much of your time would you say is spent thinking about the artists and the arts organizations themselves versus advocating for them in the press or the government? You know, we think about artists all the time. Like, what do artists need? And thinking about artists is what drives us to do that kind of work, to, to, you know, speak at city council hearings or to talk to funders, to amplify studies and research and things like that. We're always trying to figure out what artists need are and how we can serve them better. Yeah. One other thing that I really gravitated to about A4 was that it's across disciplines, right? It's not just you come from the visual arts, but it's not just visual arts. Was there a learning curve for you about these these disciplines that you may not have been as exposed to? Or would you say A4 focuses on more specifically on one discipline or is it truly across the board? I am still climbing that learning curve. <laughs> yes, it, it's been interesting. I mean, I've done a lot of programs when I was, even at the Hirshhorn, we did kind of interdisciplinary programs. We did poetry and music and did a sound event there. So I've always been involved with, you know, crossover disciplines. It's, you know, I'm constantly learning about different things, which I love. I mean, it's one of the greatest things about this role is to be able to engage with artists, see what they make, learn about their needs, learn about the different disciplines. I will probably never stop learning. I'll tell you, like we recently had a town hall event. This is our bi-monthly event where we bring people together, usually around a specific theme or disciplines. And, but we had two artists meet at this event. And one was a, a she's a visual artist. She works, she has a piece up right now at, at Socrates Sculpture Park. And she met a dancer, a movement artist, and they are collaborating on a piece around a, a project around her work in the park. So we've done that. We've brought together artists across different disciplines to create different interactions, groups, you know, relationships. It's so satisfying and it's really wonderful because, you know, most artists or a lot of artists today work across disciplines. There are not so many people that are just siloed. Totally. That was the word I was going to use, too. I think it's a shame when different artistic dis disciplines are so siloed and there's no thought to extend the olive branch and go into the dance world or go into the painting world. I think that's so exciting. And, you know, at a former place where, where you used to work. So that must be, that must be really cool. I was going to ask actually a question earlier about Socrates Sculpture Park because I realized when I was researching you, I had been there, but it wasn't really like cognizant of having been there in the same way that I think as a kid, I went to Storm King and was just sort of like, oh, there are some random sculptures in a park without really thinking of it as a museum, which I think is actually the point of museums like this. And you talked earlier about the value of nonprofit and public art being seen. Was that the most important thing driving you when you were working there? And how do you see art interacting with natural landscapes that it's interesting because i i art doesn't always intersect with the natural with the natural Often landscape not i would Property say is a very unique experience what i love is that it is so open that there are artists working out on the pad that are creating their work in full public view they are installing in public view and people from the community they you know, walk their dogs, they take their evening walks, they will give very direct feedback to the artists and to, you know, the, the staff at the park, what they like and what they don't like, or they'll ask questions. And I love that it is so visible that it totally demystifies the art making process and people can ask questions. I really love that. I think that, you know, traditionally or in the past, past decades, there was this you know, what people thought of as public art was this kind of plop art, right? You make a, a monument or you do a mural yeah. or a mosaic or something, and that's, you just put it in there. And sometimes it has to do with the environment and sometimes it doesn't. And I think 
the most successful pieces of Socrates really did respond to the water, to the city, to the landscape, to the skyline, to the community. And I think that people didn't necessarily understand, or certainly when I was growing up, I didn't think that you know, ephemeral art was really public art. And now, you know, there's a much more expansive understanding of what public art is. And so I really, again, as I love how artists think about the world, I really loved how every artist would take their work as a different challenge and have a different perspective on, on what it means, especially when there were themed exhibitions there. It was just great to see how they would come together. And you just came from this trip, seeing all this outdoor art in you know, Colorado and Utah, you said, I believe. So you're keeping up the theme. <laughs> On the subject of your past career, what jobs and or skills do you feel that you use the most as the leader of this arts organization? I think communication is probably the most important skill, whether it's written or spoken oral communications. Um, trying to understand what people want and need and building bridges, being a good listener, I think is important too. Trying to get people to, to share a vision and a goal with you requires an open style of communication. I'm also, because it's a small organization, I have to be responsible for you know, ordering the letterhead, <laughs> checking on our, our Zoom subscription and all of these things. So I think multitasking and project planning or project management is really important. Staying on top of details really help. I think in a, in a larger organization, and it's, it's also important in this, you know, in a small organization to be able to be visionary and to, to be able to look to the future while you know, addressing the day-to-day, -day, do we have enough napkins or whatever? So it's it's kind of a tough balance. I think, you know, there's some leaders that are just like super inspiring and they're so visionary and they're just great and everybody just wants to get in line and 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 be a part of that. And I think that's a, a real gift. But there also has to be somebody who's going to make sure that the lights stay on and the staff gets paid and and all of that. And it's often hard to have those two skills in the same person. It's probably pretty rare, frankly. So I think that, like I said, communication and learning how to be a more effective communicator is probably one of the things that I focus on a lot. I'm working on it every day. As am I. As am I. You mentioned that even small organizations like A4 have to be thinking about the future and really doing strategic planning. So do you have any visions or goals for A4 that you can share with us that aren't secret? I mean, my goal would be for A4 to not even be necessary so that there are AAPI artists everywhere. But we know that's going to take a while. So in the short term, I have we are very excitedly, or I'm excited about next month because we are going to be launching a magazine around AAPI art and culture. So that is, for me, that is a great opportunity to, like, to amplify, you know, all of the voices, the very different, diverse work and voices that are coming out of our community. And also to kind of ensure that the leading lights, the creators, the, the, the OG people in the AAPI community, that their legacies are, are preserved, that their work is brought into the public eye because we have so many gifted arts leaders that sadly, you know, don't get their due. And I'm hoping that this is a vehicle that we can use to, like I said, to amplify those, those voices and that incredible work. Well, that's very exciting. What's it, what's it called? The A4 Mac Amp. Love it. Love it. And it will it be monthly, weekly? It is an online magazine. It will launch on November 1st, and it will have new content every week. Wow. That's a big undertaking. Very exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. Yes. And are you all writing the content to yourselves, or are you contracting it out to... Asian American writers or the artists themselves. I'm just curious. Yeah, we have a we have an, an editor who assigns commissions the stories. We have photo essays, we have interviews, we have reviews. 
And part of this is, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, is to give writers the platform to get their work published so that there are more Asian American Pacific Islander film critics and there are more AAPI visual art reviewers or music reviewers so that hopefully more AAPI voices will be in the mainstream. Yeah, that's a fantastic mission. When you were talking earlier about the future, I'm sure any advocacy organization feels this way, but I never heard it said so candidly. It must feel interesting to work for an organization where in an ideal world, your organization would not exist. Um, and just sort of the knowledge that in the perfect world, you would work as hard as possible and then, it, you know, you would be done. Your job would be done. But I, unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But is that a weird, like, cognitive dissonance in your brain? And how do you wrestle with that sort of pessimism every day that as long as your organization exists, it means there's this huge road ahead of you? I think... It's almost the same for every organization, whether you're dealing with world hunger, whether you're dealing with housing, whether you're dealing with you know, illness. Everybody who works for a social cause like that kind of hopes that their work is not needed someday. You know, we're seeing incremental change, not nearly as fast as we'd like, but, you know, there are, there are small small changes. You know, in, in the political realm, you see like the mayor of Boston is an Asian American woman. You see an Anna Mae Wong on, you know, the U.S. Mint. I saw that. That's exciting. Millions. So, you know, small, small changes are, are happening. We just need to keep pushing. In New York City specifically, I mean, you mentioned you do so much advocacy work with the government. We have this new mayor. We have a new city council. Do you feel optimistic about all of that or sort of pragmatic, realistic? I think it's a little bit of both. I am so inspired by the sheer number of AAPI and immigrant immigrant council members, the perspectives that they bring. You know, they are from the communities they serve. And I think that is so fantastically inspiring. I love that. But the reality is, you know, the city is potentially facing a um, huge deficit next year and the year after. And the mayor has called for reductions in all city agency budgets. And sadly, it's usually, you know, the people with the least that are impacted the most. So, you know, I, I kind of have a bit of a cautious optimism around that. We'll wait and see. We'll wait and see what happens. Yeah, I think with the pandemic and then sort of slowly moving away from the pandemic, a lot of arts organizations or leaders of arts organizations have talked about how obviously the pandemic was really difficult, but the government did provide loans and, and assistance when it was needed. But now we're sort of facing like, oh, now we don't have any more PPP or whatever it was. And people are still afraid to go see live events and support art and go to museums and things. So there's this huge uphill battle still that most arts organizations are facing, which I think people don't really think of. They, they think, oh, the pandemic's over, like everything must be fine again. But that's very much not the reality, as you rightfully pointed out to us. When I was looking at A4's programming and events, I was really happy to see professional development resources for artists because I think, especially in the art world, it's it's not talked about that often. Um, and I didn't know, I was like trying to rack my brain. I couldn't think of many other organizations that offer professional development help for artists in the same way. Could you talk about why that's important to you and to A4 and what that looks like? From a personal standpoint, I never saw anybody that looked like me leading a museum or on stage yeah. or managing a band or acting, merely. And I think it's important for people to see themselves, whether it's, you know, in a TV show, on the cover, on a book jacket or whatever. So I feel like people that have attained a level of success certainly AAPI arts leaders, 
are, are very interested in giving back to the community and pulling people along. And so I like to kind of take advantage of that largesse, I guess, and to ensure that, you know, people do see pathways to have a successful career because I didn't see it. And I think it's, it's something that I can do to give back. And, you know, this organization, we've got a almost 40 year history of doing that, of working with artists. So it's not, you know, it's not something I invented. It's something that A4 has been doing forever. When I first started, I met someone who said she got her first job at A4 coming into our office and going through a binder, a notebook of job openings. People used to mail us their job openings, and that's how she got involved in the arts. So we've been doing this. We've been doing these kind of you know, how to write an artist statement. You know, when we go through our archives, we find all of these things that we've been doing for decades. Well, it's so important. Speaking of the binder of job listings, you have digitized that, obviously, and have all these arts jobs openings on the website. And I was racking my brain again. And I was like, I think the only websites I know of that also do that are Playbill and, and you know, the regular job sites. And I just think that's so helpful and such a good resource, especially for early career artists and arts managers. Are there other things that you wish that more people knew about A4, whether it be offerings, programs, or whether it just be the existence and what you're pushing for? Yeah, we, we also have a community calendar. So, you know, in addition to all of our events, we share events for anybody in the AAPI community who would like to publicize their exhibitions or talks or workshops or whatever. So, you know, that's, that's for everybody, anybody who's interested in, especially we get a lot of traffic during AAPI Heritage Month mm. and during the Lunar New Year. But all year round, I mean, there are listings for theater productions, dance performances, you know, visual art exhibitions. So I think that that's a really great resource. And, and we are just a, a good place for artists to land. Like if you are new to New York, let's say you're just out of art school or you just moved here from someplace else and you want to plug in, like A4 gives you that. Like immediately you are welcomed and you are part of a community. And it's, you know, New York can be a tough place. And it's really nice to know that you have this kind of warm, welcoming family to kind of soften that, that landing. I think that's, that's great. I wanted to ask too, how would someone get involved if they wanted to get involved? Is it just through your website? How would that work? Yeah, people can sign up for our newsletter. They can sign up for our events. I would say 99% of our events are free and open to the public, whether they're on Zoom or in real. We have a, our next town hall in November, which is around writing. And we have two incredible writers, Tina Apostle and Ryan Wong, will be speaking and reading excerpts from their book. And it's just a great way to come and meet people and find out what's happening in the art world. I, I totally recommend that. It, like I said, people have met at these events and ended up collaborating. So that's always nice to hear. Yeah, just follow us on our social media, aaartsalliance.org. We're on everything, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You got it all. No TikTok. Do you have a TikTok? Not yet. No, it's coming. You know, I don't think <laughs> we have YouTube, though. We do have YouTube. So our programs are on YouTube. I would also say having just done an extensive marketing analysis class, I don't think you need a TikTok unless you're you have the content for it. You know, if you have one TikTok video, it's not really worthwhile to have a TikTok. And I don't even have one myself because I'm, you know, an old millennial. I also wanted to ask on that subject. Do you have any advice for aspiring AAPI artists or arts managers who may be listening to our talk? Yeah, I would say get involved with A4, first of all. And I think it's important just to align your interests with an organization. You'll familiarize yourself with them. Like if you're a visual artist and you're looking to find a gallery, it's helpful to meet other artists to go to their exhibitions. If you find a gallery that has an affiliation or an affinity with your work, then maybe 
try to get to know those people. Go to those openings. You know, if you are, if you're an actor, you know, the, it's always, it takes a village to put on a production, right? And so the more people that you know that are you know, working together, the easier it is. I mean, you know, so much works by word of mouth. And so I think networking is really important and just trying to get out there in the world. Put it out there, what you want, like let people know. And I think if you, if it's possible to find a mentor or somebody who's willing to talk to you, doesn't have to be, you know, could be once every quarter or, you know, just when you have a situation that you need to address, like just to have somebody like that who has been through it, who can, um, you know, lend an ear or a bit of counsel. I think it's always great to have somebody. Did you have a mentor in the field? I mean, I know you mentioned, I think that's very important to say that there weren't a lot of people who looked like you in the field when you started. I don't know how much that's changed. You could speak to that more than I could. But did you nevertheless have someone that you turned to that helped guide you, et cetera? Or was it just all on your own? It was all on my own. I wish I had. Well, that's probably why you're at a place like A4 now to to give back and why so many Asian American artists are are doing the same so that people have the opportunities that they didn't. Exactly. Um, I lied. I have one more question before we get to my ending segment. Class that you came and spoke in so kindly was this community engagement class that Donna teaches. And I know that you have some background in that. I'm curious, especially because the art world can feel very ivory tower sometimes. I'm curious how a four squares that with getting into the community, what parts of the city geographically A4 works with, all of that sort of community engagement side. So we work across the city. We work with artists everywhere. And I don't know that it's it's something that we have to wrestle with that hard. You know, there are artists who work with major galleries who are collected in major museums that are very generous and give back. For example, Tomokazu Matsuyama is an artist who is very well known in Japan. He has a studio here and he's really supportive to his assistants. And he has a, he hosts an exhibition of their work and encourages them to learn as much as they can and then kind of pushes them out of the nest. So that's perfect to have a relationship with artists who, who think that way and not everybody does. But I think that there are a lot more who really do, you know, care about supporting supporting the community. For example, we have a, a fellowship program that we offer every year. It's a Jading Wong is it for a dance artist and aspiring dance artist, and one is a Van Leer uh, fellowship. And that discipline changes. And we had a visual arts to two artists, an artist and a curator, sorry, an interpretive and a generative artist, um, in the in the in the Van Leer Fellowship my first year. And we assigned them a career coach and an artistic mentor. And the curatorial fellow suggested a curator at MoMA as his mentor. That's who he wanted to work with. And so we made that happen. And he subsequently got hired and worked at MoMA. So those kind of things are, um, you know, so it's not mutually exclusive. Like if somebody wanted a mentor at let's say David Zwerner or Tina Kim, we would help facilitate that too. Yeah, that's a great answer. I think so often the arts world gets bogged down in just thinking like one or the other, like we're either for the community or we're thinking about the the upper echelons of excellence. And I think it's both or it should always be a little bit of both. So I think that's absolutely true. Was there anything that I didn't speak to just before we get to my little fun, quick ending segment that you want to plug or want to say about A4 or about your career? Well, what I'll say is that I love the freedom that A4 offers and how as as a vessel, like our programming can change, like as a small, responsive organization, we can devise our programming of the moment and what artists need. And, you know, one example, actually two examples. One is this Bandung residency that we developed with Mokata, the Museum of Contemporary African Diasporan Arts. And that program was born out of the need for stronger ties between the Black and Asian American communities. 
And that's been a fantastic program. We're continuing it. We're about to launch the call for the second cohort. And I think, you know, maybe that's not something that you would do in a gallery or you would do in, you know, it, it comes from an authentic place of collaboration and, and openness. And so I'm really excited about that. You know, another program that we recently did was called What Can We Do? There were a lot of artists who were feeling helpless and angry about the attacks, the physical, the violence against the AAPI community and, you know, wanted to do something, didn't know what to do. And people turn to art at moments of deep emotion, whether it's sadness or, you know, our, our most important moments when we're getting married, people want poetry. When we're at funerals, people want poetry. People need music to heal. And artists have that power, right, to create a sense of wellness and well-being and ease. And so I wanted artists to know that and to feel empowered and to be able to give back to the community. And so we created this program, What Can We Do? And we gave small grants to 30 artists who all did different programs, ranging from teaching meditation sessions to other nonprofit employees to, you know, concerts in a senior home with Chinese folktales. So they were really beautiful ways of showing care for your, and for your community. So I, I love those kind of things. And I just want artists and arts administrators to know, you know, art is so powerful and we can use it for good. Very true. I also think what you said at the beginning is so important, which is that I think sometimes people discount smaller organizations, which I think is a mistake. They only think about the, the huge multi-million dollar budgets and the ones that are doing really extensive programming. But an organization like A4 probably has the nimbleness and the leanness. I don't even know if that's a word, but <laughs> the nimbleness rather to weather a storm like the pandemic and, as you say, to adapt and change with the times and be flexible and give people what they really need. I'm sure that nimbleness and smallness also can make you scared as an executive director and a numbers person and someone who has to keep the lights on. But I'm sure that's a balance in your everyday life that you just have to deal with. Fantastic. I am really glad you said that and ended with that. I want to end with my thank you five segment, which not coming from theater, you may not be familiar, but the stage manager five minutes before curtain says five minutes places, and then the actors say thank you five. So that's where that derives from. And it's just five rapid fire questions. Answer off the top of your head. These should be fun. You can always plead the fifth, I suppose. But the first being, do you have a favorite residency or special event that A4 has ever produced in your tenure? You mentioned two already, but you can always say those again. I love those two. I think one of my, one like super fun event we did was a low hay celebration for the Lunar New Year. And it's a, it's a communal dinner where every ingredient has a meaning and a saying, and you go around the table, adding them in, and then you toss it together. And the higher you toss, the more likely your wishes are to come true. So it's like, People screaming and throwing food together. So it's a it's a very fun event. I think anytime you add food to an arts <laughs> event is is really clutch. So I love that. What is the best thing you learned while being a public relations director? I think in terms of PR, you always have to be listening. It's really hard to stay on top of everything. So doing your best to keep current, which is a little bit challenging, especially in New York, as things are changing by the minute. And I think that that's helpful, just being aware that the ground may shift under your feet. Similarly, what's the most useful thing you learned while being a public engagement? Listening, listening, listening. I think that, you know, you, you, somebody said something to me one time. It's like when you invite somebody to something, you don't just send an email saying, you know, we're having this event. Like people need to know that they they will be missed if they do not attend. Mm. So I think making that personal outreach to people and connecting with people on that level is really important. Like a one size fits all email blast is not going to cut it. So I think understanding and being very direct and inviting to to your constituents is important. This is the second time or third time you've mentioned listening in this conversation. And you're a very good listener. And I think that's 
very important for anyone in any job, but especially in jobs like these. Having worked significantly in both D.C. and New York in various artistic capacities, you don't have to say somewhere you've worked. But where would you say is the best place to see art in D.C. and the best place to see art in New York? Oh, my goodness. That is an incredibly hard question. It depends on what kind of art you're looking for. Your favorite, so, if you were going for like a day. Favorite. I was going for a day. I would probably go to the small nonprofit galleries in, in, in D.C. because that's what lights me up. Mm. You know, I, if I go to the National Gallery of the Hirshhorn, I'll see those artists here. Usually I'll see them at the Met or something. Totally. So I like the small nonprofit spaces. And, you know, it's probably the same here, too. I think it's... It's always a surprise when you're out in Sunset Park or, you know, in the Bronx, there's you know, artists and buildings that have people doing things that you might never see that may not make it past that curatorial gatekeeper. And it's always interesting to see, like I said, how artists are thinking and what they're making and what they're doing with what they have. And so I, I really love going to artist studios. It's like one of my favorite things. I love that. I've never been to an artist studio, so maybe, maybe now's the time. It sounds really interesting. My last thank you five question, what is the best piece of professional advice you've ever received? Probably say thank you. Always say thank you. Don't be a jerk. It's a very small world. You would be surprised how things come back around. So always try, try your best to be a thoughtful human. And advice. Lisa, it's been such an amazing conversation. I really enjoyed chatting with you, really enjoyed hearing more about A4 and about your career. Again, I want to give you the opportunity if there's anything else you want to plug or say. Well, thank you. This has been really lovely speaking with you. I just hope people will go to our website, aaartsalliance.org, and learn more about what we do and what we have coming up. Please do. As we discussed, they also have all the, the usual social media channels. You can follow them on Instagram, Facebook, whatever. I'll be following them. I think it's a great organization. And uh, it's been such a pleasure chatting with Lisa. And thank you so much, as always, Call Time listeners. We have more exciting guests coming up in various varieties of arts world positions and careers. But I always love to hear from you guys about what you want to see and hear. So leave them in the comments. Let me know. And otherwise, have a great week.